at Jared. We know devotion isn't a once a year occasion. And once the flowers have wilted and the chocolates have disappeared, you'll still want them to know how much you care. Dare to give a gift that lasts this Valentine's Day with our incredible selection of jewelry. From delicate rose gold to bold black diamonds, Jared has hundreds of pieces under $299 and exclusive collections you won't find anywhere else. Shop online or find a store near you at jared.com and dare to be devoted. Blog Talk Radio. Everybody, welcome to another edition of Troy Noons is an Absolute Podcast. I'm your host, as always, John Casillo, and with me today is Dan Lyons. Hello, 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 everyone. So yeah, um, Tuesday night was fun, despite some horror at the end. I feel like that went well. Um, I'm still not on the like, you know. So Syracuse could totally win a couple games in the tournament bandwagon if uh, if they were able to play in, in it. But at the same time, um, as I posted today and for those listening tomorrow, oh, yesterday, sorry, um, we do kind of at least number out as, as somewhere around a, an 11 seed at this point. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, I think we were all pretty much on board with uh, the, hey, we weren't going to make the tournament anyway thing. Um, so it wasn't just everyone else. It was us, too. Uh, obviously, we weren't taking it to the, um, oh, this is like this terrible thing they're doing because they have a mediocre team this year. But we all sort of understood where the team's, team sat. And, and like you said, I don't think this would have been, you know, a team that could have made a run just mostly because of the depth issues. But could a 11-seed Syracuse have put a, a stare into a 6-seed? Probably. Notre Dame and Louisville are probably better than six seeds, so this uh, it's, it's a fun way to end the year. I'm, I'm happy that the team has come together and has really proven that it's not going to give up and and when it easily could have. Yeah, I, I'd say overall, like, and it's funny, I was talking to my dad uh, today actually, and he was he was surprised that that we could still get that type of effort out, out of this team. I mean, he doesn't follow the team the, the same way that we do and most people listening do, um, to know that this is really just a, a very, very uh, tough group of kids. Um, and, and they just, they completely get it. They completely understand that, um, you know, while there might be nothing to play for per se, um, they just really, they just really try it. And they just really understand um, if not how to win, at least how to keep things close. I mean, this team really hasn't been out of a single game all year. Um, and I, I know I'm not alone in, in thinking that uh, when, when Christmas was fouled out, still about five, six minutes to go last night, um, yeah, I, I thought we were done for. I think most thought we were done for. And I think Notre Dame did too. Um, and, and to see guys like B.J. Johnson and uh, Chino Avoco really show up, I think says, 
says everything that we've all been saying for a while, that next year's team is going to be just fine. Yeah, that was also awesome to see. Um, win or lose, like, uh, it, it's cool that Bayheim is trying to play in the win, and, uh, you know, we've seen Cooney get run kind of into the ground, but it doesn't sound like much is going to change, although he did a couple he – he sat for like eight minutes last night, which is, you know, probably helped because he made some huge shots down the stretch. But seeing um, A.C. now go in, in in the most crucial part of the game, play five minutes against – you know, not a great front line for Notre Dame, but Zach August is a pretty solid player. Um, and he looked looked fine. He made one he had a, a huge rebound down the stretch. Um, didn't look overmatched, uh, and filled in and we won the game. And then obviously B. J. Johnson was probably the, the team's most important player down the stretch. Uh and he's put together like three or a couple you know, three out of the last four games he's played really well. So it's awesome to see. And even Patterson, obviously he is turning into our young Stoop Jardine type uh, of, of personality here. But he also, I thought he played quite well aside from the normal, like, WCF plays that he has, especially on defense. So it's good to see those guys who, you know, people are calling for transfers or, you know, just being, waiting to see who leaves so Thomas Bryant can come. Um, it, it's nice to see those guys are, are stepping up and, and making these, kind of like exhibition games we have down the stretch count for something, uh, especially because next year's a whole different ball game. If we know we are, we have guys like that who we can count on where it's not just going to be the new freshmen. No, absolutely. And I, I think, you know, that's, I think last night was a great moment for, for fans. I think a lot of people sat around going, why are we so sold? Uh, why do we think that the team's going to be able to, to succeed with that rack? Why, um, why is everyone so confident in, in, in what's, going to happen next and I think last night was really the first time that everyone could see uh, you know next year's leaders and next year's uh, you know X factors uh, really come on I, I think outside of Syracuse what really puzzled me I know it was the top of the conversation online as well is you know Notre Dame was everything uh, everyone thought they were um, everything that, that I think you and I and, and Jared have all been kind of uh, scoffing at for a while in terms of picking them to really do anything in the NCAAs. That is, um, Mike Braden, no matter how many times he's faced the zone, still doesn't understand that just jacking up threes for an entire half is not going to work. And it was hilarious to me to watch a team in the top ten um, take such a faulty tactic and really just shoot so, so poorly um, and, and lose to a team that was pretty much rolling five deep um, and, six, and you know at times 60 for, for the majority of the game. Um, and really not shooting well and, and almost handing Notre Dame the keys to get right back into it over and over again. Yeah, it, it was like the first – I feel like it was two different halves, and they both played pretty close, but Notre Dame, um, it seemed like they tried to go to more of a pit-style zone attack early on, and they had Jerry and Brant, like, hanging out of the free-throw line, and he didn't score in the first half, aside from going, uh, when, he, when he got fouled a couple times. I think he was, like, 0 for 8 or 0 for 9 with 5 hit, hit five from the free throw line, and that was it for the first half. So clearly that didn't work, which is uh, and that was a kind of confusing strategy. Usually you want uh, more of a forward-type player playing at that spot, maybe like a Connaughton who can hit the jumper. Um, instead, you have Grant now who isn't going to be the primary ball handler. Um, he was a little more – I mean, he, he got a little more done in the second half, but by the end of the game they were just chucking up shots. Those last, like, two or three possessions where Grant just – took the ball off the floor and heaved like 28 footers were horrible. So 
it really it was strange because I feel like Notre Dame has the offensive pieces um, with guys like Mysterio and Connaughton, to, and obviously Grant's a great player, and Jackson's a really solid guard um, to to beat the zone like that. And last night they they had like the right idea, but I felt like they had the pieces in the wrong place. And in the second half, they just abandoned that, and the zone just ate it up. So it was uh, it was good to see the zone I think play as well as it has all year. And obviously Notre Dame helped by shooting three for twenty two or whatever it was. But um, I mean that's a team that could have easily shot the lights out, which is probably why no one on the site expected Syracuse to win, uh, and rightfully so. And instead, you know, SU pressured the ball well and really had a good defensive performance. So uh, that was it was good. It was exciting to see um, because some of these guys are back next year. It happens when they all play the zone as well. We've seen uh, some of the, elite, the, the more elite teams we've had play in recent years. No, I, I think that's dead on. Um, so I guess for you, uh, I know this team's kind of alternated wins and losses for a little while. Um, do you think that they can get up for Duke at Cameron Indoor, given the fact that, you know, this is not the same Syracuse team as last year that fell short. Um, this is not the type of team that has, I mean, until Tuesday night, been able to go into hostile territory. Um, does this seem like Duke is, is ready to be picked off? Um, obviously, they've lost to some subpar teams. Um, I mean, NC State is not a world beater, but they're probably a tournament team. Uh, Miami, on the other hand, is has definitely fallen back uh, over the course of the season. Do you think that Syracuse has what it takes to, to win a second straight against the top on, on the road, or do you think that it's just it's too much to ask for, but, but a close game would be good enough? Uh, I don't expect them to, to beat Duke and Cameron, um, but I do expect a pretty good game. I think uh, the last two years, you know, we've had these three matchups in Duke, and all of them have been very good, um, win or lose. So I, I think the team gets hyped up for those games. I think um, while he probably would admit it to the case, his friend Beheim probably really wants to beat Duke every time, like, badly. So I expect the team to put forth a really strong effort. Um, like you said, Duke's been had at Cameron a couple times this year, so they're not unbeatable. Uh, Syracuse really put forth a great effort last time. So I think it'll be similar to last uh, the game a couple of weeks ago. Um, I don't expect it to be a, a blowout by any means. Yeah, I, I think that that's probably fair. Um, do you think that um, do you think that Okafor is a hundred percent ready to go, or should be a hundred percent ready to go on Saturday, or do you think that he may not be? And if he isn't, do we think that 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 suddenly opens a huge, huge door for SU to to, to pull an upset for a Duke team that you know at that point? Should um, they lose, that would, would suddenly be reeling. Yeah, that would be huge. I, I don't imagine Okafor is too injured because they put him back in the game uh, against uh, – who are they playing? Was it the UNC game when he when he sprained his ankle? Uh, yes. Yeah, so, I mean, he played the rest of that game. He played 42 minutes in that game, if I remember correctly. Um, I think it's been more precautionary. Uh, so I expect him to play against SU, but if not, um, yes, I would like to see Rakeem Christmas play a whole game against Plumlee. Nice. So I guess going into a little bit of, uh, of ACC play, I know we, we touched on it last week. Does it feel like every team has flaws? Because I guess to me, 
well, last week I, I, I thought you could definitely, I Duke and Virginia and, and then kind of put a second tier of, of UNC and, and Louisville right after that. Um, no, the Duke, Virginia, Notre Dame at the top, and USC, uh, Louisville right after that. It seems that all five of those teams, suddenly things look a little muddled and and I'm suddenly not so sure um, of what happens uh, down in Greensboro and also uh, I, I guess what happens past that. Uh, you know, are, are any of these teams worthy of a number one seed? You know, Virginia kind of has a beeline on it right now, but, but a lot could change in the next couple of weeks. Um, I think as long as Virginia holds serve, they'll get one, um, even if they pick up another loss. Um, I just don't expect uh, I don't expect enough to happen behind them since Wisconsin, you know, they had their loss in Maryland last night um, Duke is there, but, you know they have two games on Duke and I think they still have to play um, I could be wrong about that but I just don't, I, I think a lot would have to happen for Virginia to uh, to lose the number one seed and, uh, all right, yeah, Virginia and Duke do not play again but um, they are getting healthier, or they should get help, healthier when Sanderson comes back. So it'll be interesting to see how they reacclimate him. Um, I think they left. I checked. Uh, I just set up the subway before I called in, so I don't know what it is like now. But uh, they were blowing out Wake Forest, so they yeah they won by a godly amount of points. They won seventy to thirty four. So clearly that's a lot better than the fifty one to fifty effort they had at home in its wake uh, a couple weeks ago. So I expect them to be the, probably the number two overall. Um, and then Duke is, is right there. Uh, I think I, I would sell on Louisville pretty hard right now. Um, Chris Jones, obviously a big loss for them. Uh, they, they just look, they just haven't looked good since all that went down. And obviously that's probably a pretty big distraction. Um, and then Notre Dame, I, I still think is pretty decent. I, I do think that SU, they just, for whatever reason, themselves out of that game with some of their decisions, and I think Bray got out coached. But I still think Notre Dame has a good chance to, on paper, be a uh, a pretty solid tournament team. They have score, they score, you know, probably better than ninety five percent of the teams that are going to be in the tournament. Uh, the question is, you know, can Mike Bray figure out how to play in the postseason? Because he hasn't done it to this point. But on paper, if you just take a take away the the past history of Notre Dame basketball, I don't know why they wouldn't be able to make a decent run. But obviously, teams like teams that have a history of, of poor tournament play seem to continue on that. We see that with Pitt and and uh, a couple others. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I think Duke and Virginia are really going to be the two standard bearers as we go forward. Maybe UNC if they start to get it back together and, and Marcus Page gets top. But other than that, I don't think there are a lot of teams that are going to threaten to go too deep in the march. I guess going a little bit further on that, and I definitely agree, I think that it's still worth looking in those two teams in particular. Um, the ACC tournament has largely been uh, been able to avoid uh, the sort of surprise championships that seem to happen in the Big East quite a bit, um, especially in the later years uh, when you saw a bloated 16-team league, you know, send some, some lower seeds like ourselves and, and UConn through as, as, uh, as champs. Do you think that this could be the year that we see, uh, you know, I, I was going to say lower, but most people would refer to it as higher. Do, do we see like a, a maybe a, a five or a six or a seven seed um, an ACC tournament finally breakthrough, not only um, to get to the final game, because we've seen that before um, in the conference, but 
but actually get through and win and, and steal an automatic bid either, you know, either it's a, it's a fringe team like NC State or maybe it's a team like Miami or a team even further down the line. Those were actually the two uh, I was thinking of. NC State has played um, – they've played some really interesting games. There are games where they come out on fire and they run people off the floor, like that Louisville team a couple uh, a couple weeks ago. Um, and then they played the UVA really close before that, but the game before that they lost the week. So they're kind of unpredictable. Um, but when they're playing well, they they sort of stare in a lot of teams. They have good scoring punch. Uh, so that's a team that I think could – Make a run, kind of like they did last year. They, they, you know, they won them. They, they play themselves into the NCAA's in that ACC tournament. Uh, and then Miami, like you said, I, I like their defense. I think they, uh, they started the year hot for a reason. I, I think they're a talented team. Um, they've just kind of hit a stag in the ACC and and lost to some some pretty bad teams. But it seems like they've kind of righted the ship recently. They should have beaten Louisville the other night. So um, those are the two that I think down the list. Um, after you get outside the top four or five, that would potentially make a run. Um, but otherwise, I don't know. I, I don't think Pitt could put it together on offense and, uh, often enough. I, I think Clemson is kind of the same way. They occasionally come out and look really good, but otherwise uh, their offense is just so woeful. And then after that, I just don't think any of those, those Wake Forest, Georgia Tech, Virginia Tech type teams have a shot. Right. And I think the, a lot of people – have a lot to say about the the bottom of um, the ACC and how it compares to the bottom of the Big East. And I know there's plenty of people to think that the bottom of the, the ACC is, is worse. I'm not so sure. I, I think part of it to a lot of people um, could really be just the names associated with it. You know, Virginia Tech, Georgia Tech, um, Clemson in some years, um, are just not really associated with basketball success. Meanwhile, I mean, Georgia Tech uh, was in a was in an NCAA final, um, you know, in the last ten to twelve years. Um, I mean, Wake Forest has been a bottom feeder in there for a while, but Wake Forest, um, you know, isn't that far removed from being, uh, you know, hanging around uh, top seed conversation. Um, has been a successful program. Uh, is probably on par historically with. Uh, the DuPauls of the world that is, uh, that people have, you know, laughed at for years after they were in a overmatched in the Big East and probably never should have moved there to begin with. Um, but, but do you think that, that there is a comparison that the ACC really is much worse at the bottom, or do you think that that's really just a misnomer and, and they're probably about even given, you know, how good the top is uh, or was uh, for both when we were there? No, I think they're pretty comparable. I mean, Marquette's pretty awful this year. Creighton's really bad this year. DePaul's not – I mean, they're better than they have been, but they're still 12 and 17. Seton Hall's totally fallen off a cliff. So their 15 and 12 record is a little uh, – I mean, that was most from out-of-conference play when apparently Isaiah Whitehead wasn't tearing the team apart from inside and Jared Cena was still around. So are those four teams markedly better than the two Techs and BC and Wake Forest? I don't think so. I think they're probably about the same. And then I think, obviously, I think the middle of the Big East is probably a little less watered down than the ACC, but that's just, and they're playing, you know, they're not going up against, they have Villanova to contend with, who's very good, but, you know, has lost some weird games. And then, you know, there's no Virginia, there's no uh, North Carolina, there's no Louisville from earlier in the year when they were at 100%. So 
I think maybe in the middle of the Big East is a little, uh, you know, maybe they have a little more depth in like the, the middle tier, but I think a lot of that's because it's a smaller league. Agreed. Um, you know, I think we're not necessarily at halftime, but since I know there's not a lot to talk about with, uh, I mean, not a lot to talk about with basketball, but obviously without postseason aspirations, um, it does get kind of tough. Um, let me dive into some football before we get to beer. Um, seemed like there were a lot of updates out of uh, out of spring practice, uh, at least the opening days. Uh, what was, I guess, for you the, the big uh, the biggest takeaway um, from the first couple of days? I know Stephen Bailey had some great updates, um, as did Nate Mink um, over at Syracuse.com. We wrote up our own, but what was your big takeaway? Was something you're excited about uh, based on what you've heard so far? Um, I'm really interested to see what um, we end up doing with the the guys who were H-backs last year, um, and I think they're still being called that, even though the offense is supposed to look a lot different. But we've heard that, you know, obviously Irvin Phillips was great at running back last year for a freshman, and he's still going to get staffed back there, as well as being put out wide, where Ashton Broyled has lined up a tight end, which I think is an interesting idea, just to get him mismatched with some linebackers and get him into the second level without having to deal with faster corners. And then uh, obviously Grizzly is a whole different skill set. So I'm very, I was very intrigued last year to see what that position would do. And it was kind of underwhelming. So now I'm very intrigued to see what that position does with another, a new offensive identity where it seems like we're trying more things and experimenting a little more with what we can do out of these two tight end sets where it doesn't necessarily mean it's two tight ends that, you know, our blockers that look exactly the same. It might be two tight ends that look completely different and have completely different roles on the team. So um, that's probably been the most intriguing thing just because that position has been so up in the air um, and we have such a, a wide array of talents and, and abilities there. Um, and then in terms of concerns, I think defensive tackle that path would be one. Uh, Marcus Coleman, you know, hadn't made a huge mark, but he was pretty productive when he played last year in spots and he was kind of one of those guys that was nabbed that, take that step forward that we, we see out of our, our big linemen on the inside on defense. Um, so now if we're going to have to start rotating guys over, I know Schaefer kind of tried to reassure people that Chris Clayton looked a part of a defensive tackle, but um, I don't know. I don't, I don't love the fact that we're already making moves like that because of depth, but it is what it is. So we'll have to see how it works out. Yeah, I think, you know, it, you hit the nail on the head in terms of, uh, in terms of what's exciting, um, I, I do think that this two tight end set, well, it might have seemed weird at first to a lot of us, um, and then we were sort of concerned, like, oh, why are we taking some of the best athletes off the field? I think if it's a two tight end set in name alone and we end up seeing, you know, everybody from Josh Paris and, and Trey Dunkelberger um, on down to, you know, Grizzly and Jamal Custis um, and Ashton Broyles and, and or Phillips, I, I think if we can find a way to get our best athletes on the field at all times at any position, um, I think it could pay some huge dividends. I think that was a big issue under George McDonald. Um, and then, you know, the latter part of the year too, under Lester running uh, a lot of McDonald's system was the big issue was just seeing, um, you know, a, a team that was constantly trying to plug guys in, but not really knowing where, um, removing a lot of our best players uh, from the field for, 
I'd say a, a decent amount of time together. Um, I am a little concerned about how we use, um, again, how we get all these guys on the field at the same time. I don't think there's a – the issue is if you have – it's not the same as a quarterback where if you have four capable quarterbacks, you have none. Um, I, I think that, that there are playmakers from a lot of the names I listed, guys like Ben Lewis, um, and obviously Steve Ishmael. Uh, but at the same time, like, I, I am a little worried that none of them are the clear-cut best playmaker. So now how do we decide who plugs in where and when um, and most effectively, you know, then how the running backs play into this. Um, obviously, we have enough guys who can run the ball just like last year. Um, you know, how does the running game figure in? How does it figure in given uh, Terrell Hunt's ability to, uh, to tuck it um, and run as well? I think it's – and especially – given uh, a pretty green offensive line. Um, I am very curious how that all shakes out along with uh, the defensive line issues that you stated before. I think the trenches um, really present a lot of a lot of questions, a lot of opportunities too, but a lot of questions uh, for Syracuse, and that hasn't been the case in, in a few years, and it's really been the strength of, of these recent Orange teams. Yeah, I'm also happy to hear that the playbook on offense is going to be more streamlined. I think it was supposed to be that last year, but for whatever reason, the offense, even when it was fully healthy, never looked like it like was 100%, you know, clicking uh, in in the in tune and and running seamlessly. Like it always looked kind of uh, herky jerky and and out of uh, out of sync. So hopefully with I'll play what that's far more limited and, and more based on options and, and slight uh, tweaks instead of, you know, hundreds and hundreds of plays. Hopefully that does kind of limit uh, some of the confusion that I think we saw last year. Two years or uh, three years ago with Hackett, I think that's exactly what he did. He cut down the playbook, you know, famously a week or two before the season started and it had, you know, worked wonders. And then I think he even did it more as we – went along and became more run-oriented. So hopefully this is kind of a return to, to that ethos of, of uh, you know, keep it simple, run the things that you do the best um, more often, and, and not try to do anything that the team isn't uh, able to do with the talent on the field. So we'll see how it goes. Because last year I think it was supposed to be more streamlined. It just never worked out. But, um, you know, hopefully we uh, we get to see a little – taste of it as a spring game and, and things look good. Uh, obviously, that's not the be-all, end-all, but it'd be nice to have a little excitement going into the summer. Yeah, I mean, I think right now, Lester said they're going to learn about 15 to 20 plays with 50, as a 50% of the play, uh, book. They're looking at another 50% of the playbook uh, learning throughout the summer going into the fall. Um, I, I think the overcomplicated playlist, playbook Sorry for the last two years has been uh, probably one of the biggest detriments uh, when you have a lot of young players that need to know the playbook um, at all those offensive skill positions. They don't necessarily think it's the best uh, way to go about things, um, at least from my point of view. Um, I think that you saw things run up last year in particular when we kept talking pace, kept talking uh, what seemed like what was supposed to be, as you said, a uh, – a pared down playbook and ended up looking like it was instead of pared down, it was almost too pared down. It was, it was probably the same five plays with just two confusing personnel, a lot of switching, 
um, which slowed down the, the supposed pace of that offense. And then by the end of the year, I didn't even know what it was. It was it was a confusing group. It was a confusing group for about two years. And now I, I do want to see, uh, you know, a return to obviously it'd be great if we could just run the Hackett offense. Um, but we don't have the athletes for that. Um, it's a different league. It's a different team. Um, but I would like to see, you know, more of that simplicity. And I think we're going to be seeing a lot of that. Um, simplicity and multiplicity, a lot of those terms kind of tossed around uh, quite a bit between now and uh, in September. Uh, I just hope it's not it's not all talk and we actually see uh, some of the results on the field. It's like any other team. Um, you're not a lot of buzzwords. Uh, I'm sure the spring game will be, you know, we'll see the basics of the offense, but we're not going to see anything that's not people going too crazy just because coaches are so terrified of flooding anything out. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's going to be hard to judge up until we actually see the product in August. Remember how excited we were last summer. Uh, and obviously everything went to, to, you know, went to hell pretty quickly in the season. But it's good that, that things are changed, at least. So it's not like, all right, well, we're going to go do the same thing we did last year and uh, just hope it's better. Definitely. And guess with that, uh, Side note before we jump into beer, um, that the Hokies are beating Duke right now, which makes no sense at all to anyone. Uh, And then, yeah, now we'll proceed into beer. So, what do we got, Dan? What what have you been enjoying? What have you been uh, not enjoying on the beer front? Um, the thing I've been drinking a lot of, mostly because it's been in my apartment, uh, is uh, I've had, you know, it's not anything too new. I think they released it a year or two ago, but uh, Sam Adams Cold Snap, which you should be able to find anywhere. Um, we call it wheat beer. It's not overly, uh, you know, weedy at all. Uh, this actually has a pretty decent hop profile, um, really nice, fully flavored uh, winter beer. Uh, just really, really solid. Um, not overbearing. So it's not, you know, not the best thing you can get from Sam Adams, but it, it's a really good, solid beer you should be able to find pretty much anywhere and just for the season. Uh, and then I also had uh, Wine and Krugel put out a Snowdrift Vanilla Porter. Uh, wasn't a huge fan of that. Um, porters are kind of hit or miss for me. Uh, and it's it doesn't do too much with the vanilla, but it's, um, you know, pretty sweet, uh, pretty standard uh, what you get from from a porter in general. Um, so decent flavor. It's just not really my thing. But if you, uh, if you like those, that's another one that you should be able to find pretty easily. If you find on Google, getting a, you know, pretty wide distribution at this point. Um, not much else this week after we kind of unloaded uh, last time we did beer, but hopefully <laughs> this weekend I'll be able to go beer shopping and pick up some decent stuff. Nice, nice. Uh, as always, I drink a lot. That's kind of what I do. Um, as I mentioned in the comment section, I was able to uh, get a quick alert that Plenty of the Younger was having a secret tat um, about a mile or two away from me, so I quickly hopped the car, headed over there, um, grabbed that beer, and I was very, very glad I did. Um, you would think a triple IPA would be just a mouthful of hops and just really kill you. And you know what? It was actually uh, right amount of sweetness, 
right amount of top character, uh, really smooth finish. Um, I understand why it's a world-class beer. Just so, so good. Uh, really glad I got over there. Um, had a uh, City of the Dead. Um, that from uh, Modern Times. It's a nice mix of, uh, of coffee and bourbon. It was a really enjoyable one. Uh, Brown Habit was an interesting kind of brown saison. Uh, had a nice, you know, had a nice hot backbone, but I think still overall uh, stayed very true to the the, uh, the saison style. I'm also going to hit up one of my uh, favorite local bars, uh, Amarillo Gorilla from Smog City. I've mentioned this one before. Not bottled, only really appears um, in Orange County and L.A., uh, really just delicious double IPA. Uh, also had probably the weirdest beer I've had in a while. Uh, Sriracha uh, showers from Noble Aleworks, uh, which is down in Orange County over by uh, Anaheim. Really weird uh, kind of beer. Double IPA had like, it almost felt like it was like a blue cheese finish. It was very odd. I liked it, but I, I can't say I was I was enamored with it. Uh, it was just one of those kind of interesting, had to try it once beer because I heard a lot of good things. Um, also had, sorry, this is becoming a long list, as always, uh, had a funky gold Amarillo. Uh, it's a really interesting sour from Prairie. Um, double negatives uh, for the majority of the podcast listening in and around New York State. Um, double negatives, just a really good uh, label porter. Let me double check that. Maybe stout. Nope, Imperial Stout. Uh, really good stout from uh, Grimm Artisanal Ales over in Brooklyn. So Dan and a lot of other people, if you're in Brooklyn, maybe check this one out. Because, again, really liked it. And I felt like overall for uh, for the heft of, uh, of alcohol content it should have had and, and did have, it didn't it didn't drink overly boozy, which uh, which is good. Um, and also had a, a Citra IPA from McKellar. Um, when you can get fresh McKellar beers, they're very good. When you can't, um, like a lot of people, especially um, out here, uh, they're not as good. Uh, but this one was fairly fresh, all things considered. And uh, looking forward to uh, getting more fresh McKellar um, in the coming uh, years. Since they, uh, they've officially entered into a partnership with Alesmith down in San Diego and will be brewing some of their beers there. Um, which is great because then we'll be able to get some uh, some bottles, you know, not like three to four weeks old. Beer for the week. Now, uh, my favorite topic, well, at least for the past few weeks, uh, bracketology. Before that, Dan, how do you feel about a couple things? A, what's your overall takeaway for Kevin Garnett uh, leaving the Nets? And two, how do you feel about your Packers releasing A.J. Hawk today? Um, on Garnett, uh, I was fine with it. Um, in one of the only instances since moving to Brooklyn, the Nets actually got a better player for, out of a trade. Uh, Garnett was probably going to retire if he was on the next at the end of the season. Um, we got back uh, Thad Young, who uh, is 
you know, not a great player, but he's a, a capable NBA scorer. Um, he has an option to leave after the season, but he, you know, it's something. He's a pretty manageable contract if he if he doesn't take that clause. Uh, and the team has no incentive to do anything other than try to win basketball games for the foreseeable future. So it made the team a little bit better. Garnett was averaging about six and six and playing like twenty minutes. So we got a player who will probably play closer to thirty-five and will probably score closer to fifteen. So it's a—I mean, it's not a game-changing win. I don't think it's going to make the next playoff team. I mean, if, if they were going to make the playoffs, it's going to probably be the SNA seed anyway. But it's—you uh, know—it's a fine trade. They won the trade. I think uh, Minnesota was trading for Garnett for different reasons, and and that's very cool. I'm happy to see him go back there because obviously both sides wanted that to happen. Um, as for AJ Hawk, he's one of the weirder NFL careers that I can remember. He was obviously a monster at Ohio State. He was a the number five pick overall. Came in with these huge expectations and was fine for a long time. Uh, totally got overshadowed by Clay Matthews when he joined the team. Um, and he's kind of flipped between, like, overrated top five pick who never panned out in terms of being a superstar and underrated, really serviceable linebacker who is, you know, reliable and, and plays pretty well all the time. And Packers has never really seemed to nail down a Hawk legacy in the middle somewhere. So, uh, you know, he was a, a good Packer for a while. If he was, like, a third or fourth round pick, people would have loved him. Uh, I think generally he has pretty favorable reviews as a Packer. It's just, you know, it's weird to to think back because his, the draft he came from was so long ago, but I think it still kind of clouds him. But he's a, he's a useful NFL player, I'm sure. A team will pick him up and he'll fill in and be a good NFL player for a couple more years. So uh, I'm not broken up uh, about him leaving. You know, he wasn't great, but uh, it was – you know, he's been a big part of the team for a while. So uh, I, I'm fine with both. Um, obviously, I would have loved Garnett to work out better in Brooklyn, but it wasn't his fault. He was old, and that made a really stupid trade. And A.J. Hawk was A.J. Hawk. So, it, you know, fine week overall. Can't really hate. And, and, and Hawk also frees $3.5 which will probably end up going to Randall Cobb, who they need to resign like yesterday. So hopefully that happens very soon. Nice. I have to say, uh, very well-reasoned, well-measured uh, rationale for both of those. Um, I don't like to jump into the nets much, but um, I, I would say you're, you're dead on Hawkers. When I first saw Hawkers released today, I was kind of puzzled and surprised. I said to myself, like, whoa, Hawk, I was like, that's a big move. And then the more I thought about it, I said, you know what? No, it's not. <laughs> like, it, it's It's more about... It's more about the cap savings, and it's more about just in general, um, you know, moving on from a player that you're right. Just, I felt like his name was always was always there. Um, I felt like he was always productive. Um, making the Pro Bowl in 2006 was obviously a big deal. Um, was it 2006? No, sorry, draft in 2006. Made the Pro Bowl in 2010. Um, yeah. It was a big deal as was winning the Super Bowl, and that was his best season. But um, that said, I guess I just kind of always latched on to his potential and that season when thinking about him. Because um, I even thought to myself, oh, should the Giants go after him just as kind of a veteran stopgap? Maybe we do, but I doubt it. 
Um, so just very interesting stuff and, and kind of, you know, how, I guess it goes back to the main argument people had when they were trying to get a rookie salary scale for the NFL is that, you know, sometimes if you come in with those ridiculous expectations, um, it's sometimes too hard to overcome. And with him, I mean, maybe that was the case. Um, and, and maybe it's, it's my fault as a football fan, kind of continuing to attach them to him. But uh, he'll be looked at, I, I think, when his career is over, uh, very interestingly overall. I wouldn't call him a bust. I wouldn't call him a success either. It's just a very odd kind of mental ground he's inhabited. I think the other thing with Hulk is that the Packers, I, I believe, are going to try to get uh, faster along the, the linebacking core. And this year we saw starting about two-thirds of the way through the season, we saw Clay Matthews play on the inside a little more, and it, it seemed to spark the defense a bit. Um, I don't think he'll ever be a full-time inside linebacker because you still want him as the primary pass rusher, but it allowed some of the faster outside linebacking uh, guys the Packers have on the, in, their, in the depth to get on the field and, and kept Clay out there and, and gave the defense some different looks in terms of uh, where the, pass, the pressure was coming from. So I wouldn't be shocked if that became a bigger thing going forward, and, and I think the Packers will probably draft uh, a linebacker somewhere in the first couple rounds. Obviously, they do things differently. They're not going to draft for need, but um, there are a good amount of linebackers, and I could see them going after one of the first two or three rounds for sure. Makes sense. I think once we get close to the draft, we can definitely have an uh, NFL draft episode where uh, you and myself and, and Jared try to talk Syracuse while not being homers and also talk our own team without being homers. Um, Sean Jared, obviously, more. Overall. <laughs> Okay, we're going third overall. Darrell Eskridge will magically jump into the bottom half of the first round. Doug Marone. So right. Jump up and take him. You know what? Like, I really thought Marone was going to do it with Nassib. And then after he didn't I do it there. <laughs> no, I, I, that's the thing. Like, I, I don't think we wrote about it then, but, like, I think but we might have. Like, that's when you knew that, like, Marone was done with SU. When, like, he, when he didn't do it. But... But he was willing to jump and take somebody who, to be honest, I thought was a bigger project um, in, in EJ Manuel. And it's interesting to me now that, you know, Manuel is like, I'd say about a year from flaming out of the league um, as the Bills, you know, try to deal for everybody under the sun um, to replace him. And, and Manuel, like, really is flaming out of the league while. I think Ryan Nassib could, could end up holding on longer despite never really starting or really playing much time at all. Yeah, I think Nassib's stock is at, rising steadily because he played really well last preseason. And, you know, there are always teams looking to see what's out there at quarterback and seeing if they can catch lightning in a bottle. And the Giants might even be a team like that if Eli can continue to bounce back a little bit this year, but he's still getting up there, so... Um, I think Ryan's definitely going to get a, a pretty decent look in the NFL, um, even if he doesn't start in the next couple of years. And it brings up a good point, though. Like, when is the when is the kind of stop dead point for the quarterback? Um, we've seen other quarterbacks, you know, like the journeyman for years. I mean, guys like 
Jeff George started for a while, and then and you had guys like Rich Gannon that really managed to be journeyman for years until they found the right system, got themselves to a, to a Super Bowl, um, like, late in their career. Um, like, to you, when's the kind of drop dead on the quarterback? You've been, in the, you've been in the league for X amount of years. You didn't make it. Sorry, guy, you're done. I don't know. It's hard to tell because um, teams have been increasingly willing to hand the keys to a rookie um, it seems like the game is becoming a little closer in terms of, you know, when guys are ready to play. So I don't know if there's like a stigma attached to rookies that uh, end up going to the bench or guys who are project players like Ryan is now. But um, it's hard to – you don't see a, a ton of guys sitting around to be like 30-, 50-year-old backups. Um, obviously they're out there, but teams seem more willing to draft players, see if they get something out of them and if not, develop them and see if they can flip them and use them more as assets than having a guy. I mean, obviously, they're like the Matt Hasselbeck who was in Tennessee a year or two ago and guys like that who teams keep on as insurance. But it seems like uh, that's becoming less and less a practice where you, you know, teams are more likely to keep a young guy around and see if they can do like a Matt Hassel type situation where if the guy ahead of them goes down, they'll see how much – uh, excitement over him he can generate and maybe he'll turn into a third or second round pick rather than keeping a guy who, you know, might hand the ball off well a couple times and, and was a good player once. So it's hard to tell. I think I think the whole the whole league is changing pretty rapidly and I think quarterback especially is a position that's a lot different now than it was in the early two thousands or late nineties. Right. And I think it just depends on too, I think how many you know, spread coaches end up showing up too. Um, I'm not sure if we see a ton, um, admittedly, just because of the mixture views um, for coaches. You know, leaving that sort of environment in college and heading up to the pros. Um, I think while a lot of positions have been victim to uh, to churn um, in the NFL, I think what what you're seeing now is finally uh, the quarterback position seems to be kind of the last stone. Uh, churn there in terms of churn rate. I think churn rate has increased a ton when it comes to systems, when it comes to coaches, when it comes to a lot of other positions. I mean, quarterback is finally kind of – and I think, too, you're seeing part of it is the effect of the rookie salary scale um, and, and these first-round picks not making $60 million at the box where, like, Sam Bradford is kind of the, uh, you know, the last relic of, of a dying age where where Bradford is, is – is a contract that people just sit there and, and make comparisons to and, and make excuses for because of the money he makes um, and because of the, the, the attention and, and expectations attached to him when he's drafted. And I think that's a, a big part of it is now. Like, if, you, if you're only going to invest, you know, $20 million over four years or three years in a guy like E.J. Manuel, given the, the NFL cap and given, uh, you know, kind of the short lifespan for, for every other position, I think you now – attach that to quarterbacks too and say, eh, you know what, like, let's give it three years. Let's see what we can do. Best case, we get the next Matt Ryan or Joe Flacco. Worst case, uh, you know, we get the next Brad Johnson or, well, they're not going win the Super Bowl. Uh, you know, worst case, we get the next J.T. Lawson and, and we cut our losses after three years. So, to me, yeah, it, it's interesting to finally see, uh, you know, QB churn rates catch up to everybody else. For sure. It's really interesting to see you know, different franchises um, operating with different sets of rules because the Rams 
you know, maybe they go with a different quarterback this year, but they're still loath to totally give up on Bradford because, like you said, he's like the last of those huge rookie contracts where, you know, the Redskins might drop RG3 um, after, you know, he had an amazing rookie year and then he's been hurt, uh, and they might just have seen enough already where Bradford's gotten way more leeway so and with more injuries. So it's interesting to see uh, – Multiple franchises are basically playing under two different sets of rules because of when quarterbacks were taken, and there definitely is a lot less uh, rope for those kind of guys now, like we see with with Buffalo. I mean, who knows if Manuel ever even starts for that franchise again? Right, and I, I think like Manuel's an interesting case. I said I think it, it just so happened that we we kind of stumbled into these three players: is, is Manuel, uh, Bradford, Griffin, who to me kind of. Uh, exemplify a, a ton of different extremes. I, I think Griffin could potentially not even be in the league um, within a year, and it, that's insane to me, given the marketing buzz around him, the hype around him to get in, the Mount Washington gave up to pick him, how well he played his first year. It just, it's insane to see something like that, um, and then see the type of guys that, that you know continually get chances in the league. And, you know, we're going to see the same kind of thing befall, uh, you know, Johnny Manziel in, in very short order, is that if he doesn't end up in the right system or for the right team, I think he's another guy who could end up out of the league, uh, you know, not entirely by his own fault. Yeah. I mean, the, the the common thread there is that the Browns and Washington are really dreadfully run organizations. Um, so, when there's a an issue between injuries or, or all the things that Johnny has going on, um, and a team doesn't have the infrastructure to deal with them or the maturity uh, in Washington's case to deal with them, because every part of that situation seems to be pretty awful. Um, you see things like uh, rookie of the year player falling off the face of the earth, or or Cleveland. You see, yeah, Mandel clearly has like no support system. So. Um, Obviously, I think those two would have been better served going to franchises that know how to groom players and know how to, you know, keep play people accountable and and raise rookies. But it, it is interesting to see superstars or guys who, you know, haven't even touched their their the highest level of what they can do, uh, getting cast aside. I think with with RG three and even Manziel, if he ends up flaming out, I think they're so talented that someone will take a shot on them. But it, NFL seems pretty quick to make people damage goods, so it, it it's going to be very intriguing, um, especially for Griffin, just because he was so good that rookie year. Yeah, I think uh, you know another really interesting point there about franchises. Uh, I think the franchises best equipped for projects are the same ones that never take them on. Um, you know, you, you look at like, the reason that that franchises like the Packers and the Patriots and Steelers and the Giants. Um, don't take on these projects is because they're so good at picking sure things the first time around. Um, and I think that's something that goes largely unexamined uh, in the NFL is, is just, you know, these old school franchises and ones that are just run with, with a ton of loyalty and, and maybe a little less, I mean, outside of the Patriots, um, a little bit less stress on some advanced metrics and, and, and efficiency and, and a lot of it is based on, um, you know, like, what have you done for me in the long haul? How do I feel about you as a person? Um, and, and then kind of their initial scouting reports on the guys. I mean, 
basically these are these are uh, three organizations run largely by uh, the eye test and loyalty, and, and then another one, the past that is just a machine that cannot be stopped. Um, it's it's definitely interesting to me to see these teams. These teams would be the ones that would be most well suited to deal with with the projects like an EJ Manual or a Johnny Mansell or a Robert Griffin, but will never ever take them on. And they don't even take them on because they hit on their quarterback. I mean, <laughs> between those both of those four franchises, they haven't had a quarterback, a new quarterback since Favre left the Packers. That was the last time, and they had a guy, and they had to put him right in. He became one of the two or three best quarterbacks in football, um, or if you're me, the best quarterback in football. So <laughs> it's. Uh, you know, it, it helps that when they do take on a rookie quarterback, it, it works out. So it's, uh, you know, there's a reason that franchises like that win on a consistent level. Yeah. All right. So we'll close out with some bracketology. You know, was a little bit more NFL than we've ever talked on the show. Um, but as always, we're using ESPN, but th- this is not a Bible on, on which to lay your hand. Uh, SC Nation's picture just as good as our team rankings, as our CBS's. At the end of the day, nobody really knows um, exactly what they're talking about. They just have a rough idea. Um, that does not go for us, though. We're the only ones who know what we're talking about. For sure. We are perfect. Yep. <laughs> so, this week, um, again, these are based on games from a couple days ago. Uh, Midwest Bracket. You know, it's weird. I feel like Kentucky-Wichita State is much more dangerous for Kentucky this year than it was last year. Wichita State was a one seed. Um, I think NC State is a terrifying matchup for Kentucky in the first round as well, just because NC State is one of those squirrely teams that can just can just find you on your worst night. Um, San Diego State also getting shifted um, to the Midwest Really, really hurts them here because they really they were my surprise pick for a couple of weeks. Um, I also think Kentucky getting spotted up with Wisconsin doesn't really do them any favors. Uh, there could be some upsets in here. Uh, again, NC State and Wichita State look kind of scary. Uh, the UCLA and Texas both look scary as 12. I'm going to discount Notre Dame after the thing I saw on Tuesday. Um, I think you're looking at a Sweet 16 of Kentucky, Wichita State. Uh, Butler and Wisconsin, and I think it's Kentucky-Wisconsin, which if there was ever a chance for Kentucky to lose for the uh, Final Four um, in this year's bracket, this is it. Yeah, Wisconsin's interesting. Um, like you see Notre Dame there, in the which would have, which be a, uh, a Sweet 16 matchup. Um, Notre Dame obviously presents an issue because they shoot the ball so well. This past team, you know, not, you know, obviously that didn't happen this past time in Syracuse, but I think they just don't have the size, Where whereas Wisconsin shoots the ball really well and has, you know, maybe not the athleticism, but they can match up with Kentucky uh, about as well as anyone can um, on an inch-per-inch basis. Uh, obviously, they don't have three seven-footers, but they have one really good one. Um, and Texas is really interesting as well for the same reason. Like, that's one of the biggest teams in the country. They have three or four really talented coach players. Obviously, Rick Barnes has done what he does and has turned that into a bubble team where it should be like a top three seed. 
But <laughs> that's still a team that, you know, last year had a pretty decent tournament run, and this year should have been better than last year. Um, and that talent isn't going anywhere. So definitely some interesting stuff. Uh, I think Kentucky will come out of the, the top part. Uh, the Louisville, um, they're playing in Louisville for the first two rounds in this. Uh, I'm not as worried about NC State, although I do agree they are dangerous. Um, I'll take Kentucky and Wisconsin. Uh, I just think they're two of the five best teams in the country. And um, it's kind of a, unfortunate that they wouldn't be a, a matchup even farther down the line. Yeah, I think this is a it's a major bummer. And I don't know if this is before. I know this is the game's completed on. Actually, no, is this today? No, it's what's today. Yeah, I think so. Today. So this is the game's completed as of today. Well, at least before tip off today. And I feel like Wisconsin dropping is is in large part due to what happened against Maryland, and I can't necessarily agree with it um, because I still I look at the two seeds that they have here and. You, can't tell me that Wisconsin is, is the fourth best two seed. Based yeah, on, I mean, we're going S curve. Yeah, I mean, you have Kansas lost to a, a below 500 Kansas State team, and and by the S curve, they'd be uh, what the the top two seed here. That doesn't make any sense. So I think this is more based on um, location, but that sucks for Wisconsin because they're such a big gulf between Kentucky and even Virginia. Right. And, yeah, that's, I mean, it's what I don't understand here. Like, I understand why they'd be in the Midwest. But I think if I were them, you know, I'd much rather be in the West, go away from home, and have a shot to potentially just get by Gonzaga, um, you know, in an Elite Eight to get to the Final Four. Um, For sure. I don't like, yeah, I don't like this S-curve, but, again, this might not be, as S-curve based as we'd like it to be. Um, so going out to the East, um, Virginia gets a, a fairly easy road. I don't like, again, this is more S-curve and, and in-conference nonsense. There's just, I would not agree with anyone slotting in North Carolina for a potential matchup with Virginia in the Sweet 16 when it doesn't need to happen. There's not enough ACC teams to make that happen, so I don't understand why it would. But but here we are. Um, I think North Carolina would probably lose to VCU before that. I think Virginia and VCU would just be a really wild clash of uh, of styles. Um, and that's actually a game I'd love to see. Um, I think I think Virginia wins, but I, I'm not completely sold on that. And if, Dan, if you'd like to cut me out of it, I'm happy to hear it. Um, in the bottom part of that bracket, um, Villanova gets a bit of a gift um, in, in that, that first Pittsburgh um, sub-bracket. And the other side, um, I think Maryland, again, gets a little bit of a favor. With West Virginia is a scary team, but I think Maryland's good enough. I think Maryland ends up finding itself in the Elite Eight against either Virginia or Virginia Commonwealth. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of thinking the same way. Um, in terms of the North Carolina seeding, um, Lenardi actually has three ACC teams in the four seeds, and then the op- the only one seed that isn't paired with an ACC team is Duke. Obviously, they're going to not, you know, if someone's going to get screwed, it's going to be Virginia, not Duke. <laughs> um, so, it, uh, so that is a little bit of a, an issue. Obviously, they could play around with some things and 
and uh, switch, you know, a team up or down the line. But I do agree, in in a perfect world, you want to keep conference teams away from each other as long as you can. Um, now, in terms of the East, uh, I think Indiana's an intriguing team. Um, I think they're really talented. I, I'm always impressed for, like, minutes at a time when I see them play. But Tom Crean is just such a mediocre coach. Um, not quite doing a Rick Barnes job this year, but uh, some of the guys on that team are awesome players, and he's, you know, he has them as, as an eight seed right now. When that team, talent-wise, should be probably a five or a six. So that's the thing, that's a team that can kind of go off and, and has as much athleticism and talent as just about everyone, anyone. But I, well, let's send Indiana know, to the Midwest bracket that they can join the all-underwhelming <laughs> squad. I mean, we've already got Notre Dame and, and Texas there. I'd say UCLA post-2008 is probably there. Uh, <laughs> Indiana's obviously yeah. there. For sure. We're getting very close to the, the all-underwhelming bracket. Um, now, if you're, yeah, as I was saying, if, if you're going to ask me to take Tom Crean over Tony Bennett, uh, I'm not going to do that. So I'm going to take Virginia. Um, I think the bottom here is really interesting. West Virginia is scary. Uh, Villanova has played really well. I I think I, I have a little bit of an anti-Villanova bias here, only because I, Syracuse should have beat them, and I don't think Syracuse is a team that uh, at that time was going out to beat many, like, top two seeds. Um, and I saw some people arguing they should be a one. So I'm not – in love with Villanova. I think the Big East is getting a lot of credit where probably not entirely deserved, and that's where Villanova's rep is coming from here. Uh, so I, I, I agree with Maryland. I think Maryland is super talented. Uh, I'm Every time I see them play, I'm shocked by how good they are considering all they lost this year. They lost like six rotation players, and they somehow got a lot better. Um, Mella Trimble's legit. Des Wells is a top 10, 15 college player, and I might be underrating him a bit. He was a uh, unbelievable against Wisconsin last night. So I like them over Nova. Um, you know, Ole Miss and West Virginia are both sneaky, and they could both be those teams. But uh, I really like Maryland. Uh, and a Maryland-Virginia game in the Elite Eight would be a lot of fun. Yeah, I think that would bring up a lot of uh, old animosity and, and actually big, bring in a rematch from, uh, from the Big Ten ACC Challenge uh, back in the early part of the year. Um, yeah, I, I think, think Virginia... Yeah, a little, little grudge match, but yeah, I think we're definitely anti Villanova. Um, I think that's clear, but because the big issue is like they honestly haven't done enough in my book. Also, why are they not in all caps? Because don't they have the conference champs in all caps? Does yeah, that makes sense. That's yeah, a stylistic like issue. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I don't really buy them, but it's going to get to Sweet 16 pretty easily. Um, Colorado State's dangerous, but at the same time, I probably the worst 25-6 and six record I've seen in a while. Or whatever it is. It's like something around that. Um, I also, I looked, when I was doing the article about uh, the faux bracketology, I couldn't believe like how terrible Ole Miss's like, resume was, too. Like I mean... In some ways, it's good, again, that we aren't going to play much. Other ways, it's bad because this is really like one of the most miserable bubbles in a long time. Um, yeah, I'm not not really impressed by most of these teams ranked like seven and under, um, save a few here and there. 
Yeah, it's a really uh, headed west, here, which oh. is why I think Syracuse really would have had a shot here. Yeah. Um, if, if Syracuse won two more games into the ACC tournament and they were eligible, I think they'd be in. Yeah, I, I agree there. Despite the, the general bias against us, uh, I, I think we'd make it. But headed out west, um, my typical crusade against the Zags, they hadn't faced anybody. Um, and that's, it's funny, I feel like they get less shit about it than, than Syracuse does, uh, despite you know one of those statements being true and the other one being completely and utterly false. Uh, Gonzaga just doesn't get taken to the ringer the way they should. I mean, I'm sure if they approached the Mountain West and said, hey, you guys want us to come in for basketball only, they'd be like, yeah, let's, let's do that. And and that'd be it. And that, you know, that would actually improve everybody's lot in life. Um, Mountain West would, would solidify itself as a top six conference um, unequivocally. I think San Diego State and Zaga games would be must-watch television. Um, I think you'd see uh, game day at both locations a lot more. Um, I think it just it seems like it's a really easy win. And for the Mountain West, it's, it's another uh, – you know, I, I know we, we kind of passed the, the conference realignment uh, television market conversation, but it is a good market, and it is something that, like, I'm, I feel like they're probably talking about. They've been talking about behind the scenes. and just can't get it done. Yeah, I mean, it's maybe did, does the Mountain West have any uh, non-football? I think it does, right? No non-football, but it has a non-basketball. Like, Hawaii only is football only. So they have right, 11 okay. teams in basketball and 12 in football. All right. So they've, they've shown that they have, like, some ability to to not keep things totally uniform. Right. So, yeah, and then even even the uh, – what's the – I guess the WCC, right? Yeah. Yeah, so then that conference isn't dominated by one team every year. Obviously, they probably wouldn't want to lose Gonzaga because, it you know, they bring a lot of attention, but – would the other schools really be that upset? Would St. Mary's really be that upset? Uh, they could keep their rivalry if they want, and then, you know, they aren't, uh, you know, when they're a one-bid league, one bid league, it's not automatically going to go to uh, the Zads every year. Well, the interesting thing there, too, is that if it starts setting some dominoes, because then what happens to BYU? Like, BYU well, is supposed to be... With... They've already admitted they're kind of... Uh... You know they're in for a conference as soon as they can get a P5 to to pay attention to them. Well, also true, but yeah, I they think that one of the yesterday. I think that they, to be honest, I, I feel like BYU is has really hurt its, its non-football brand by being in the West Coast Conference in in recent years. You know, they were supposed to be the kind of counterbalance mm-hmm. to Gonzaga, and instead, uh, you know, they've kind of struggled on the bubble. Uh, they really haven't been any better than, a, for the most part, like a St. Mary's. I mean, no, they're not going to. The, the problem is because of how bad the, the, you know, the floor is to that conference. I mean, you know, I, I work like literally ten minutes away from from LMU, and if I wanted to go see a game, I would. But why would I? Just because the the quality of basketball is just so bad there for years now. Uh, same with with fellow uh, LA County resident Pepperdine. Uh, there's just there's just not enough quality basketball there. And if, if I'm BYU, considering the brand that they are, and and Gonzaga too at this point, the brand that they are, like I don't know why you'd want to 
sit around and associate you. So, like, Gonzaga, everyone has one critique of your program, just one. And, and there's a very easy way to remove it, and, and it is leave the West Coast Conference immediately. Yeah, I mean, even, uh, you don't think the American will let them in? <laughs> they have to fly across the country uh, every week, but, you know, the American will take anyone. Man, Spokane, the stores, that would be like the, the flight from hell. <laughs> how many how many changes? At least three. Oh, uh, no, direct, baby. I mean, there's no such thing as a direct store <laughs> since it's uh, about 30 minutes outside of any airport, but uh, going right to Hartford. If there's a Spokane to Hartford flight, that's terrifying. I'm going to look it up while, we, uh, while you break down the rest. Oh, no. <laughs> All right. Uh, I don't think a one is going to be they're going to lose to a 16, uh, so I'm not going to go there. But if there was a 16 that could win, this NC Central is a dangerous one. Um, again, I'm picking the Zags. Somebody's going to yell at me, I'm sure. But picking the Zags. Um, I, I don't – if they can survive Oklahoma State or St. John's, I'm not really sure about that. Um, with either team, I'm pretty sure that Arkansas or Louisville, I'm going to go with Arkansas there, beats them. So, to be honest, uh, with the West, I, I've, I've got Arkansas coming out of that top half of the bracket, which sucks for them being in the West. It's, that's really not an easy trip. Um, and then in the bottom uh, half of that bracket, you've got some weird, dangerous teams, um, in SMU and Providence and Iowa, but um, – Again, this lays out very well for Arizona, which, again, I'm calling BS. Like, <laughs> Wisconsin should be the two in this bracket, um, and, and we really should be watching a Wisconsin-Arkansas uh, Elite Eight. But instead, because of how – well, I mean, this isn't real, obviously, too. Um, instead, based on Lenardi's predictions, uh, we'll be watching Arkansas and Arizona in a game that just has so much less sex appeal and – just is not at all like what I would want to see. And to be honest, I, I think Arkansas could actually give, give Arizona a run. But um, so, so with that said, I, I'm going to go with Arkansas over Arizona um, to get to the, the final four. Yeah, we're like mind-melding here. Uh, Arkansas is also <laughs> the team that I had picked out. I also think Oklahoma State's pretty interesting. They've won some big games this year, and uh, – but I don't know. I'm not, I'm not floored by their talent. Um, oh, by the way, uh, you can get you can get from Spokane to Hartford with uh, a layover in Minneapolis. Oh, well, that's still awful. But <laughs> um, anyway, the obvious, like you know, I expect Louisville if this was to come to fruition to be the hot name in terms of like what people actually filled out. And as I said before, I'm totally punting on Louisville forever. Um, not going to, like, I have no faith in Louisville to win another game based on how this season's played out. So I'm fine with Louisville losing. I don't think they'll lose to Valpo, but if you ask, if you put Louisville up in Arkansas right now in a team that should be a lot of fun between two teams that just play ridiculous defense, I, I would take Arkansas by about 10. And Louisville's a more talented team. Dean, it sucks because this is when the bracket takes over, over the matchup. Um, it just... Arkansas just gets a cakewalk here, and, and this is where I think the real bracket is going to change things because this is basically a joke bracket for for Arkansas. Two games in Jacksonville, Florida, um, and then they got to come out here to L.A. Um, I'd actually love to see two East Coast teams face each other in L.A. only because 
then I can probably get cheap tickets online for like 30 bucks. Yeah, and then you don't have the issue of like when Syracuse played Cal in California, obviously uh, the Orange won, um, despite, you know, some buffs to the contrary by the announcers, which we won't get too specifically into. <laughs> but, um, you know, if you're going to send teams out west, I, I think it would be preferable to try to make sure everyone's traveling a little bit rather than just one team. Especially when that one team is the highest seed. And, and, yeah, that that also. You know, that also. That's when, also a team, when, a team, when a team calls Berkeley at home, you don't want to have them play two games in San Jose. That was ridiculous. The worst. But we made the final four. Especially when we had such a, a tough first-round match of it that powerhouse Montana program that uh, many <laughs> of the, the experts thought we would have trouble with. Uh, I mean, Syracuse only won by, like, 70. That was that was like the only time I've just been completely relaxed for a first round game. I've I've never enjoyed a first round game more. That was so much fun. Same. All right, and to close us out here, uh, the South, um, as, as you alluded to earlier, this kind of sets up really well for Duke. Um, Ohio State's a tough team, but I don't think they beat Duke. I don't believe in Baylor, um, Northern Iowa. To be honest, I think Iona gets itself to the Sweet 16 before they lose to Duke. Um, actually, no, check that. I think Northern Iowa gets there only because I think I think Northern Iowa would lose to Baylor, but I think Iona beat Baylor. So I'm going to go Duke over Northern Iowa to get to the Elite Eight. On the other side, um, this seems like a really easy bracket for Utah. Um, I mean, Georgetown is not bad, but they're Georgetown, so... Don't be shocked if uh, if Purdue is dancing on graves at the end of that game. Um, yeah, I'm I'm going Duke and Utah, and uh, I'm kind of tempted to pick the Utes, to be perfectly honest. Um, before I jump into stuff, I forgot to mention. Uh, I'll just say really quickly, I'm Team Iowa State forever, so that that'll be my <laughs> probably my final four team out of the West, um, and I'll probably end up picking them almost no matter where they are. Just I think the team's awesome. Uh, it's a little uh, underachieving. They're, I, I just don't think they put up to their potential this year. But anyway, in the South, um, I, I almost think Duke has a harder run than a Utah or, or Kansas. If Kansas, you know, is in fact a two seed, which is weird to me. Um, Ohio State, I don't think they're great, but I, I think D'Angelo Russell's probably the best guard in the country and is uh, capable of like anything and everything. So. I don't think that would be a cakewalk game by any means. Um, and then, obviously, the, the whole, that whole uh, that whole foursome, I, I don't know much about Wofford, but Northern Iowa, I think, is legit. Uh, Baylor presents issues with their athleticism, and occasionally they play a zone well, but usually they play it pretty subpar. And then Iona's is a blast. They score in the 90s fairly regularly. Uh, I think Duke's the best team out of there, but I could see them tripping up against a, whole, uh, a number of those guys. And then uh, I think we've both been in on Utah. Um, what, I don't think it surprised anyone for Michigan State to somehow uh, start playing, like, top-level basketball, but I just really oh, don't yeah. see it with us this year. Uh, LSU's intriguing, too, but I think they're a year away when they bring in, like, that ridiculous recruiting class next year. And then Georgetown's fine, but... Uh, the NCAA tournament, so they'll, you know, they'll probably turn back into a pumpkin. And 
yeah, I think Utah has a pretty easy side there. If Kansas is your two seed, I'd be very happy as a three seed this year. Yep. All right. So to close this out, um, we kind of went through this bracket, but brackets aside, if you were to pick the four teams likely to get to the final four, who would they be? And that could be, don't have to base it on this bracket, but just in general, who would those four teams probably turn out to be? Um, let me run through here again. If I had to pick four teams, I think I'd go Kentucky, Virginia, Iowa State, Wisconsin. And I would go Kentucky. I think Iowa State great, and I think. <laughs> uh, Iowa State has burned me too many times, and and my my brackets have suffered as a result. I can no longer jump on the Cyclones bandwagon. Um, I'm sorry to the Cyclones fans out there and to you, Dan, bandwagon Cyclones supporter. <laughs> I, I simply cannot do it. Um, so I'm going Kentucky, Wisconsin, Virginia, and Utah, who I think is the best team in the Pac-12. Yep. I mean, I think they're very good, too. But Fred Hoiberg is, is, is the coach of my heart right now in terms of uh, – and, and I think <laughs> I, the Cyclones just have all kinds of good players. And they're 20 and like, – I think they're like 20 and 6, so it's not like they've been bad, um, as evidenced by the three teams they're currently slated to have. And I think they're a half team out of the Big 12 lead with Kansas' loss the other night. But I just think that starting five has so much going for it uh, if everyone's healthy and playing well. Um, and I don't think that uh, a lot of teams can match that when Iowa State's playing at their best. So hopefully they start to do that because I'll probably end up taking them pretty far in my bracket uh, and maybe losing money on them if they lose an embarrassing game to some, like, seven feet. Yeah. So I guess that's, uh, I guess that's kind of it for, for me. Um yeah, thanks for uh, thanks for joining, Dan. It was nice to to chat through Syracuse's non-tournament hopes and really not preview Duke much. But I mean, let's be honest, it's, it's unlikely yeah, to Duke go well. But Duke. yeah, everyone knows Duke. We've already played them. We, we we discuss Duke all the time around here. Well, I look forward so, to yeah, the next for, one. Uh, uh, we have a nice streak here of talking uh, about Syracuse casually after wins the top top 12 opponents, so hopefully we can do it again next week. Yeah, that would actually be delightful. So uh, for everyone listening at home or wherever you may be, uh, thanks for tuning in to Troy Noon's An Absolute Podcast. I'm John. That was Dan. Please subscribe, review, rate us uh, on Blog Talk and iTunes, and we will uh, talk to you next week, hopefully after yet another upset. Go on. At Jared, we know devotion isn't a once-a-year occasion. And once the flowers have wilted and the chocolates have disappeared, you'll still want them to know how much you care. Dare to give a gift that lasts this Valentine's Day with our incredible selection of jewelry. From delicate rose gold to bold black diamonds, Jared has hundreds of pieces under $299 and exclusive collections you won't find anywhere else. Shop online or find a store near you at jared.com. 
and dare to be devoted. At Jared, we know devotion isn't a once a year occasion. And once the flowers have wilted and the chocolates have disappeared, you'll still want them to know how much you care. Dare to give a gift that lasts this Valentine's Day with our incredible selection of jewelry. From delicate rose gold to bold black diamonds, Jared has hundreds of pieces under $299 and exclusive collections you won't find anywhere else. Shop online or find a store near you at jared.com and dare to be devoted.